The gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 15. This is the fourth word of Jesus from the cross. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and about three o'clock Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And then our lesson from the Hebrew Psalter this morning is Psalm 22. We will sing it together to this uncommonly effective English metrical paraphrase. You'll notice that this is the psalm Jesus was quoting from from the cross when he died. And also, of course, the psalm that organized St. Mark's uh, telling of the Passion narrative. And while we're singing it, while we're singing it, notice that the verses alternate between lamentation and affirmation of God's reliability. It's the way the psalm works in the original Hebrew. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, in a sermon series entitled, A Wideness in God's Mercy, naturally we'll spend most of our time talking about how God, in the wideness of God's mercy, manages to forgive erring humanity, and then how, in turn, humanity can learn from God how to forgive each other. But today, I just want to spend about 12 minutes talking to you about forgiving God. Now, is that even a rational phrase? Does it make sense to talk about forgiving God? In classical theism, the definition of the being God is that being than which none greater can be conceived. God is the zenith of power, knowledge, wisdom, mercy, and goodness. By definition, God cannot make a mistake. However, the scriptures don't think it's absurd to think about forgiving God. Do you know what the most common kind of psalm there is in the Hebrew Psalter? At least a third, and maybe as many as 65 of the 150 songs in the Hebrew Psalter are songs of lament or complaint, including Psalm 22, which we just sang a minute ago, and which organizes Mark's passion narrative. There's even a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, which is just a fancy way of saying complaints, right? They can be summed up simply like this. God, what's the deal with the raw deal you've given me? Why are you treating me so shabbily? Even Jesus thought that he had to forgive God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, cries Jesus from the cross in a loud voice. They are among the only words recorded recorded for us by Jesus in the language that he originally spoke, Aramaic. And perhaps they have survived in the human memory for 20 centuries because once we heard them, we could never unhear them, no matter how hard we tried. Jesus is utterly alone. 
His treasurer has betrayed him. His lieutenant has denied him. The police have brutalized him. His enemies lie in court about him. The governor has convicted him in kangaroo court. The entire city mocks him. His friends flee. And now he is dying all by himself. There is no one there, not even his best friend. And Jesus is aggrieved because God is simply gone. And Jesus wonders if he can forgive God. My heart just aches for the three people who have taken their own lives this last week after school shootings in Florida and Connecticut. Sydney Aiello graduated from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School last June. She was a lively, outgoing cheerleader whose best friend, Meadow Pollock, died last Valentine's Day at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Family and friends speculate that Sydney had been suffering silently from survivor's guilt and from PTSD. Calvin Desser, a 16-year-old sophomore at Stoneman Douglas, also took his own life. In Newtown, Jer Jeremy Richmond took his own life. His six-year-old daughter, Aviel, was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14, 2012. Alex Jones and his henchmen at InfoWars call the Newtown shooting a hoax. They have been harassing the Sandy Hook survivors for six years on the internet, on the phone lines, and on the street. Some of these people have had to go into hiding. They've changed their email addresses, their phone numbers, and even moved out of town so that their, secret, their location can be secret. Wolfgang Halbig is evil incarnate. He's a retired state police officer from Florida, but he's using his retirement to harass the parents in Newtown whose children died in 2012. He has raised $100,000 for the sole purpose of bullying these parents. He insists that Jeremy Richmond's daughter, Aviel, is still alive and living in Newtown with another family. Can you blame Jeremy for wanting to exit such a world? One Newtown parent who lost a child was so sick and tired of the harassment that he emailed Mr. Hulbig and asked to sit down face-to-face -to, -face to hash this out. A spokeswoman for Mr. Hulbig responded, Wolfgang does not wish to speak to you unless you dig up Noah's body and prove to the world that you lost your son. <laughs> I wonder if suicide is a way of giving up on God or on the universe. I'm not judging them. I'm not even blaming them. For some of us, the world can be such a horrible, brutal place that it becomes unbearable. We can no longer live here. We can't forgive God or the universe or whatever, so we feel compelled to leave. This is something of an aside, but it's important. A psychiatry professor at Columbia University encourages parents and siblings and friends to keep a close watch on their sad young people. 
She says, don't wait for them to approach you. They don't know how. Nobody saw these three suicides in Florida and Connecticut coming. Everything seemed to be fine, or at least as fine as they can be after something like this has happened to you. And this Columbia professor says, we ought to monitor the moods of our young people and our loved ones just as closely as we monitor our own blood pressure. Yes? If you're worried that somebody you love is at risk, go home and do a search on Columbia Protocol. Columbia Protocol. Now some people who feel as if they need to forgive God have figured it out. They know how to do this. They figured out how to heal their wounds or at least to live with their scars. I'm reading the most wonderful book. It's called Love You Hard by Abby Maslin, a fourth grade school teacher in Washington, D.C. And I love this book partly because my own daughter is a fourth grade teacher in Washington, D.C. Love You Hard. It's something Abby's husband, T.C., said to her, from his hospital bed. He'd probably meant to say, love you lots, or love you very much, but TC struggles to find words. He has aphasia, which is language impairment caused by brain injury. Six years ago, when Abby and TC were 29 years old, TC was walking home from a Washington Nationals game late at night by himself when he was accosted by three men who asked for his cell phone and his wallet. T.C. gave them his wallet and his cell phone, but one of them took an aluminum baseball bat and hit him in the head so hard it caved in his skull. T.C. crawled to someone's front porch and lay there alone for eight hours until the morning when a passerby found him. He was in the hospital for three months, and when he came home, he had the same mental capacity as his two-year-old son. Six years later, T.C. is much better, but he still struggles to find the right words. He told Abby, I made bread from trash. He made bread from scratch. Sometimes he calls Abby his sister or his aunt. Love you hard. And the writer of this book is very honest about how she's coping with all of this. She says that in some ways it would have been easier if T.C. had died. Not better, but easier, because at least that's a grief you can understand, right? You know how to be sad for somebody who's left you. But how, to, how do you grieve for somebody who's still alive? T.C. is not the man she married, and she's still trying to figure out. She calls her grief ambiguous, and she's still trying to figure out how to reconcile those conflicting emotions of grief and gratitude. Gratitude because her husband is still alive, but grief because he's no longer the man she married. After the injury, a friend came up to Abby and said, I'm sorry your life got ruined. This comment hit her like a ton of bricks. She asked herself, did this tragedy ruin my life? And then she had to admit, some days it seems that way. Some days I just drop into bed exhausted and stare at the ceiling and say, okay, universe, you win. I give up. I surrender. But then, the next day she's back at it, falling in love with her new husband all over again. Love you hard. 
And she quotes Maya Angelou, Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into the daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. There's a story. It might be an apocryphal story, and yet it might be true, because it sounds like the Jews. The story goes that one day at Auschwitz, a group of Jews put God on trial. They charged God with cruelty and betrayal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? And they could find no excuses for God, no extenuating circumstances. So they found God guilty. The rabbi announced the verdict, and then he looked up and said, The trial is over. It's time for the evening prayers. It was the Sabbath. So that is what they did. They adjourned to their evening prayers.